0: Live brought to life by Jennifer English. Live juicy inside scoop. Oh, live juicy. Is that what you said, <laughs> Jen? <laughs> She's Listen, got I me. want
1: you to live juicy, but this is live this juicy. Is, you is know the
0: word. Juicy. Here's the problem. It actually says live and life right next. Life and live right next to each other. And it is truly, it is truly a mess. I cannot even let me look. I didn't even do this yet. I didn't even slam on the Hold on. We're, we're really behind, right there. behind. Yes. There we go. Okay. Now let's go back. Let's go back and read this, Jennifer. And I'm going to rewrite it because it says life and then live. So live juicy inside scoop from the tastemakers, newsmakers, bread bakers, drink shakers, spoon lickers, clam dickers, farmers, foodies, and friends of the food and beverage magazine world. Now we got that out of the way. Jennifer wrote that. I think just to tickle my tongue <laughs> every single one. We want to say hello. We want to introduce, uh, we've got a great, some great guests today.
1: I am right, raising Jen? my glass. You are? To one of the most esteemed and remarkable human beings I have ever been privileged to meet. Wow. And I'm proud and honored to say that he became a friend.
0: A well, let two- me bring him on. Give us his name while I bring his him on. His
1: name is Jared Brown. <laughs> Welcome, Jared Brown. I'm clinking my glass to you.
2: Wow. Cheers. Cheers. Boom. Cheers. Wonderful to see you again. It's been far too long. You look fabulous. You haven't changed in the least.
1: I've changed on the inside.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you, Jared. We've never met. What a nice thing to say. Like the fine wine, I'm sure.
1: Yes, yes. Like the vintage cognacs of old... I'm about barely, to leave
0: this I'm about to leave this love fest because no, I, I know
1: and it'll get really juicy really quickly. And when we say you never know what's going to come out of their mouths, I say that when our friend uh Jared is on because he's one of the most eloquent, knowledgeable, and generous experts in the realm of spirits, past, present, and future. He's had an active hand and role, pen and shaker. And he has been really prolific in writing extraordinary volumes on the history of cocktails and spirits. He is regularly sought out worldwide as one of the co-founders of Mixology, the organization he helms with his extraordinary wife, Anastasia Miller, presently uh, seeking doctoral um, studies at, uh, is it Oxford or Cambridge University, Jared?
2: Anastasia has just finished her second degree at Oxford. She just took a master's from Oxford um, as well as another master's elsewhere and another degree from Oxford. And Now she's on to Bristol because, frankly, Oxford can't handle her anymore. She's, <laughs> she's gone beyond there. So she's found the tutors that she needs to continue her exploration of the history of drink, focusing on brewing and distillation history in Britain. She's changing the history of gin, which is fascinating.
1: One of the things I have to then comment on is there is no one else roaming the planet who could literally drain the cup dry at Oxford of (laughs) all knowledge on the topic, soon to be enriched with her own additions uh, and replenishing the requenchable Uh, by taking the next steps in knowledge. And I have to say we're both, I'm sure very proud of her, but I'm thrilled to have you here. We miss her a bit that she's not here, but I'm a little bit greedy and I'm glad to have you. And I know Michael is thrilled to have you here as well, but I'm kind of glad to have you all to myself. How have you been? And we should tell people that one of the ways that they may know you best in recent years is as the founder of Sipsmith and it's in that role that I wanna start our conversation today and congratulate you on the extraordinary success of Sipsmith Spirits, formerly Sipsmith, just gin. Talk a little bit about how you've gone from being one of the world's foremost authorities on spirits to actually becoming a distiller and um, a spirits maker and and whiskey peddler yourself.
2: It's been, a real circuitous journey for me, because if I, if I look back far enough, really, this is where I started out. Um,
1: yeah.
2: I, after about three years of informal wine education, I realized that I would always be a passionate amateur about wine, but it, it wasn't my focus. It wasn't my route, it wasn't really my passion. So age 10, I did my first distillation experiment uh, it was just making applejack, so taking hard cider and freeze distilling that off um, to bring up the ABV. Uh, trouble was, upstate New York in the 1970s, you couldn't buy hard cider. Well, age 10, I couldn't buy anything. <laughs> so I ran off a batch of hard cider, not my first. I'd been making that for a couple of years by that point.
1: And we should say that upstate New York is the land of apples and Johnny Appleseed, prolific quantities of extraordinary palms and apples, and um, really some of the best cider I've ever had. Really organic apple cider, I should say. That cloudy, wonderful, unclarified, give it to the kids cider.
0: I give it to the the kids. kids. What's wrong with you guys? Well,
1: cider's become a new, like a hard thing. It's become a, a spirited beverage with an alcohol by volume measurement. I'm talking about the kind they would they would give us as kids when we went on our apple picking field trip in the 1970s at school.
0: Oh, okay. No, you mean uh, no volume of alcohol related? Pretty much. Okay, fantastic. There's Tommy Politz. He's enjoying watching us, but there's no relation.
1: Okay. All right. Anyway, sorry, Jared. I threw you off there with the cider and the 10-year-olds
2: not at all i was just hoping that these days nobody listening still thinks that johnny Appleseed was out there planting trees for people to eat apples from since when you're growing apples for the fruit for eating you do that from graft rather than from seed planting seed was purely about making hard cider and Johnny Appleseed believed that what America needed more than anything was a lot more hard cider.
1: We have had so many wonderful sips and conversations over the year on the topic of apples and how they grew to become the category, uh, and our Applejack uh, and Laird's apple brandy and and these wonderful stories. It's a it's it's chapters of American history that really were not taught to us properly. And again, that's one of those things that you've corrected in the in the knowledge base of our collective, you know, spirited consciousness. So thank you for that. But one of the things we should also point out is, you know, the apple spirits, the apple brandies, the ciders, they really are traditionally American. The same way in some sense that what you are producing in England, where you are actually joining us from. You are in England right now. Tell everybody where you are.
2: I'm in Wiltshire near Bath in the west of England. So if you landed at Heathrow, um, you would then go about an hour and a half, two hours due west until you know, you've almost hit water again. You're not quite to Wales, but there's the Severn River which separates. England from Wales, and we're about thirty minutes from that. Oh, neat! The far west, out in true countryside.
1: So there's a there's an organic measure of social distancing that takes place there by virtue of the room you have to breathe.
2: That's beautifully put. And for us, that's an acre of garden where we've actually got uh, about 25 apple trees here and we made about 35 liters of cider last year. Um, this morning, we were actually racking off something new for us with our first hunt, harvest of honey from our bees. Oh, neat. We're, make, we're now making mead, of course.
1: Now let's just tell everybody Hard cider, the way you're producing it, and mead are very old with an E, old beverages. Will you just very quickly give us a primer on what those two things are? Because as we face a very uncertain future, these may play a little bit more in our future than we think right now.
2: (laughs) So true. At, At its simplest, if you take apple cider and you leave it open, and leave it in a cool spot or a dark spot, reasonably warm um, within a week, it's either going to rot and mold or it's going to ferment. And you're going to end up with a very rough version of a hard cider. If, if you put an airlock stopper on top of that, if you use some good yeast, if you filter it off, if you then bottle that and let it rest for about six months, you can actually create a really good beverage from there. Even six weeks, plenty of time, Serve chilled. Uh, Making hard cider is so simple. Mead, the honey version. So all you need is honey, water, yeast at its simplest. Get those together. The fermentation is quick. Rest it. If you've added a little bit of, I add some orange, a clove, some cinnamon, and when that's finished, it tastes like a really good Chardonnay, except it's just missing the the notes that are distinctly grape.
1: In this vein, during this period of pandemic, I've gone to my friends from Wild Creek Naturals who produce a variation on on an old plague doctor blend that they call the Marseille Remedy. And it's a blend of um, clove oil, cinnamon oil, eucalyptus oil, lemon oil, and clove, cinnamon, eucalyptus, lemon, and one other essential oil. And I take that blended mixture and I marry it with a really good unfiltered apple cider vinegar, clove of garlic, rosemary, and peels of orange to create a fire water that will chase away the kinds of bacteria and germs and viruses that we're all fearful of right now. If it worked in the period of the Black Plague, I figured uh, it'll, and I blend that with a little hot water and I drink it as my tea.
2: That sounds like a wonderful remedy.
1: But I have to say, the first time I made it, I thought of you.
2: (laughs) She tells me, Jared, she says she
0: thinks of me often. I, I don't believe it either. Jennifer, would you be able to make that list that in agreement for Tara Marks, who's commenting here? Do you know uh, Tara Marks?
1: Uh, yes. For for the um, we'll do it
0: later. We'll put it, we'll in, the, it later in the email. We'll
1: put it up online, and I'll do that. We'll find her, and we'll do that. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in, though. I just want to make sure I know whether she wants the mead or the uh, antiviral blend. Hey, let's go back now. Well, to,
0: she wants it for the firewater, something yes. we all can benefit from currently.
1: Okay. I will make sure we do that. While we have one of the most uh, esteemed, decorated, and distinguished um, members of the uh, spirits community, I want to talk a little bit about what he accomplished with Sip Sipsmith. Uh, his gin was really revolutionary back just a few years, uh, but in doing what he did, he, he sort of reawakened a tradition in London that hadn't been been revitalized in a very long time and it's still one of the great stories of this modern era of craft distilling. Jared, will you tell everybody about Sipsmith and how it was born? We got a little off track and that's all my fault.
2: Oh, I love being off track with you. We we always have the best conversations, but Sipsmith, uh, it was a meeting of three minds. Uh, actually happened at the beefeater distillery 12th December 2007 on huh. a station I were there celebrating the completion of the beefeater 24 we' worked on the tasting panel for Desmond Payne helping develop that one met these two young Brits from the West country who'd been working in the states but they were inspired by the craft movement and they saw opportunity in London and they wanted to explore craft gin Uh, it was something i was desperate to do as well they were missing a distiller i was missing people who knew how to do business so by the next day we were already talking about this but one of the biggest problems was that there was a law in england that made it impossible to get a license for a small still it was the excise act of 1825 So the last license issued in London for a copper pot still was Beefeater in 1820. So it had been nearly 200 years. And in that time, gin was disappearing. Uh, When we got started, there were 12 distilleries making gin in Britain, 20 brands. Uh, When my business partners took down that act of 1825 by working with... Lawyers and government ministers, etc. It made it possible for us to get the first license, since beefeater in London for a copper pot still. Wow! But it also kicked the door open, and on the basis of that legal work, there's now over 500 distilleries making over a thousand brands of gin in Britain today.
1: The way that brandies and Ciders made of apples seems to be so distinctly American. I think of gins as being the quintessential UK spirit. Will you talk a little bit about whether that's an apt association that I make? Is it I true?
2: Very much so because it goes beyond even available ingredients and techniques, but it goes to heart and soul. It goes to passion. It, certainly with Applejack in the States where I mean, that was the official supplier of alcohol to the revolutionary troops. That was, that was Laird's back in the day. And over here, Gin, they said that it came from Holland during or after the 30 years war. But uh, Anastasia has a load of proof that Gin was really born in London and so we've got recipes like 1602, Hugh Platt's right. Delights for Ladies, a housekeeping manual, and well-to-do ladies who were brewing for their households were also distilling juniper spirit in London before the Thirty Years' War. And we found recipes from this time that didn't just have the juniper, right. but orange and lemon peel spice-supported, and then Geneva came along, and Geneva was huge at the beginning of the gin craze, but gin wasn't born from that. It didn't evolve from that. It had already been here, and then it came back.
0: Hey, Jared, do you think that's that's having a resurgence now with these botanical gins that are coming out? Like, I don't know if you've tried the Pomp and Whimsy, and there's some delicious gins out right now, and... and um... Do you, uh, my my thing, it obviously isn't new, right? Um, is that what is that what's happening now? Oh, on the it's market? just
2: it's wonderful to see all of this botanical exploration and flavor exploration, and also what this shows is that we have, we live in a world where you can have the same rum and cola in every bar on the planet. So the ultimate indulgence is exploring. Craft products and exploring products made with hands.
1: Jared, when we talk about wine, we will talk about the terroir or the taste of the place. When we talk about the brandies in the American spirit of Applejack or whiskeys, a little less so, but you can kind of distinguish which whiskeys might come from which quote unquote traditions. But the interesting thing to me about gin, And the category of gin is that so many of the elements that go into the influence of its flavor and backbone and architecture are things that are blended. Gin is almost in and of itself the distiller's cocktail, an amalgamation, an alchemy of these elements, these botanicals, these florals, these spices, these barks and these other notes. Can you then really taste a terroir in these new gins? Can a new gin from a place like Japan or a new gin from a place like London, like Sipsmith, or a new gin from a place like um, Western Massachusetts and Greylock, could you really distinguish which was from which place? How do you talk about terroir in terms of gin?
2: Actually, the the place where I speak of terroir in gin is In particular, the sourcing of the juniper. Um, Juniper, which is the female seed cone of the juniper bush, which is a a pine bush. Um, It's not actually a berry. It's just that the scales became fleshy and formed together, give the appearance of a berry. Um, It grows subarctic to subtropic all the way around the northern hemisphere. But only along the north Mediterranean do you get the juniperus communis communist that gives the right flavor. This is the terroir of gin. And this is the juniper that was exported by the Genoese merchants into the rest of Europe, where juniper grows prolifically back as far as 1250 AD. They discovered their product was so much better that they had no trouble selling it to people who already had more juniper than they knew what to do with. Right. So here I find the terroir. You can bring all of the techniques to make a very traditional London dry gin to Japan, and you could make it there. But um, you won't do it unless you have the Mediterranean juniper. And there are a few other elements that come through distinctly. But what I really like seeing right now is that There's so much exploration going on. Uh, A dear friend of mine over in Japan who's making the Roku gin, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and he hasn't bothered to just go down the route of traditional London dry, but he's explored local flavors. So he's working some of those elements. For me, very much a traditionalist on what was created in London I'm making a gin. My London Dry from Sipsmith is a gin that was born around 1850 and disappeared, for all due intents and purposes, around 1870. This was gin made in a one-shot method on a copper pot still. So nothing added after distillation except water to bring it to bottling strength. And a recipe that would not surprise a distiller from that time.
1: Did the recipe utilize... Uh did you you obviously tried dozens? You're meticulous in your research. You and, and your partners, I'm sure, all were of a certain opinion about the recreation of a London dry gin. Did you merely um take the traditional recipe or did you did you interpret it somehow?
2: Oh, we definitely interpreted it, but imagine if a world with cookbooks where no two ovens perform the same. And that's how stills are. And so when you take a traditional recipe, you will have to interpret that. And it's still here. It's using your palate. It's using your heart. It's using your knowledge to interpret that recipe to bring it out the best it can be on the equipment that you're using. And so there was a lot of interpretation and a lot of personal balance that went in. Even when we got a new larger still, our first still was 300 liters, our next was 1500 liters, and moving our London dry recipe from one to the other, I had to shift some of the botanicals in ratio by as much as 25% to make an identical gin on a different still.
1: Jared, I want to um, talk a little bit about the success that Sip Smith enjoyed when it was launched and the swiftness with which it has grown into an international brand. Will you take us through that short but very rich trajectory?
2: (laughs) Oh, um, it was a really wild ride. Um, After meeting the guys, I went, uh, it was just three of us in a West London garage. Export was anything outside the motorway that goes around London. Distribution was a moped. Um, our awful. first customers remember my business partner, Sam, walking into great hotel bars, case of gin in one arm and a helmet in the other. And that was where we began. We've grown a bit. I think we're now in uh, about 65 countries.
1: Wow. So what are we, what's your case number up to? Is that, is that even a conceivable number for you?
2: I mentioned I have business partners for a great reason. They do all of the business side. To me, I try never to focus on how much we're making because as we agreed from the beginning, my job was to make sure that every bottle is made exactly yeah. the same.
1: How many products are there in the Sip Smith line now?
2: Um, there's our London Dry. We've got the VJOP. You're all familiar with the SOP from Cognac, the very special pale. Nothing to do with that. We're not French. We're English over here. It's very junipery overproof. Oh, but it brings together the three traditions of introducing juniper into London Dry gin with maceration, where you load the still spirit, botanicals, warm it up, leave it overnight, and then distill, or no maceration, where you load the still with botanicals, distill immediately. So
0: with maceration- YouTube subscribers, subscribe. I don't even know. We're not gonna, we're just saying it. Go to YouTube and subscribe. Yes.